Hi, everyone. Welcome back. My name is Jen Toslieb. And I'm Jose Sanchez. And we are the co-hosts of the Criminology Academy, where we are criminally academic. In this episode, we're speaking with Professor Christopher Sullivan about juvenile justice and delinquency, DMC, or the Disproportionate Minority Contact, as well as being a journal editor. Chris Sullivan is the incoming director and professor of the School of Criminal Justice and Criminology at Texas State University. Prior to that, he was professor in the School of Criminal Justice at the University of Cincinnati, serving as director of graduate studies for several years. He received his doctoral degree from Rutgers University in 2005. His main research interests include developmental and life course criminology, juvenile delinquency and prevention policy, and research and analytic methods. Dr. Sullivan will publish Juvenile Risk and Needs Assessment, Theory, Research, Policy, and Practice with Rutledge Press in fall 2021. He is also the author of Taking Juvenile Justice Seriously, Developmental Insights and System Challenges, which was recognized as Outstanding Contribution by the American Society of Criminology's Division of Developmental and Life Course Criminology in 2020. Professor Sullivan has been named a 250th anniversary fellow at Rutgers University and a fellow of the graduate school at the University of Cincinnati based on his research and has received award recognition for his mentoring and teaching of graduate students and academic service. Professor Sullivan has been co-editor of the Journal of Research in Crime and Delinquency since 2017. That is quite the list of impressive accomplishments, Chris. Congratulations on your award for your book, which you very kindly sent me a copy. I have it sitting on my desk right now. And thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you both for having me. It's really a pleasure to be with you, Jen and Jose. I've followed some of the different episodes that have come out since you started this podcast. And so I'm really happy to be here and to be among the list of guests you've had. Yeah, we are very excited to have you on as well. So to give kind of a brief overview, as usual, of this episode, we'll start with a section talking about juvenile justice and delinquency, as well as the disproportionate minority contact. And then we're going to dive into a paper that Chris is a co-author on, on disproportionate experiences in custody. And then last but not least, we're going to ask Chris some questions about being a journal editor, as well as kind of tips and tricks for writing reviews, as well as responding to editors as an author. So Jose, I will let you get us started. Okay. So Chris, as is customary in this podcast, we're about to hit you with probably a question that is maybe a little too big, but we're going to ask it anyways. So we want to start off with Aside from the obvious of juvenile, the juvenile justice system dealing with adolescents and sometimes young adults, people in their very early 20s, what are some of the key characteristics that differentiate the juvenile justice system from the adult system? Yeah, I think that that is a big, big question, but it is an important question in terms of setting a context for any discussion, really, of the juvenile justice system, because we tend to be a little bit more familiar with the criminal justice system for adults, even even those of us who have studied crime and criminal justice for years. You know, I think the first thing I would say is that these things exist on a spectrum. So it's not necessarily the case that there's no, you know, there's no degree of either punishment or rehabilitation orientation in the adult 
versus the juvenile system. So in other words, you know, while the juvenile justice system is going to tend to a bit more of a rehabilitative focus, a bit more emphasis on the individual youth and their development, kind of in addition to, you know, community safety, applying sanctions for offenses that have been committed, while the adult system presumably could be viewed as more punitive, even though it has some rehabilitative features in it in terms of treatment, whether someone's in the community being supervised or whether they're in prison or jail where treatment services, excuse me, are made available. So, you know, in terms of that spectrum, in terms of that mix of rehabilitation and punitiveness, it's going to skew a bit more towards rehabilitative approach in the juvenile system. Now with that, you know, you're going to have sort of different language that's often used. So for example, rather than being found guilty, youth would be adjudicated delinquent. So, you know, the idea is going to be to not be quite as rigid in the way in which we talk about cases, the way that we talk about youth who are involved in the juvenile justice system. So those are going to be some features, obviously, in the juvenile justice system, there's going to be potentially other players that come into the process. So for example, family engagement may be an important aspect of juvenile justice processing treatment, whereas, you know, with the adult system, that's going to be less a point of point of emphasis. So I think that both in terms of sort of their operate or sorry, their goals and then also their operations, there are some differences, maybe not not to the extent that each excludes elements of the other when we start talking about kind of being punitive or being rehabilitative, but the sort of the emphasis and the degree to which those are a focus in dealing with cases is going to be different across the the two systems. Right. And and juvenile cases, are they always, what's the word, not public? There's probably a much better better way to to say that, but not Yeah. I mean, I think generally there are some protections in the juvenile justice system in terms of not making cases public. You know, however, I think there are instances where cases and hearings are opened up. The other place where it can become, where there's been a a bit of movement and discussion in in recent decades is really with with respect to records and, and whether or not juvenile records kind of carry forward or are sealed. So I think that's another instance of, is there a collateral consequence of committing a delinquent act that carries forward into adult, into adulthood? And there's sort of some varying, I think, very both perspectives on that and then also legislation on that. But generally speaking, the hearings and and the proceedings of a juvenile court are going to be more closed than the adult adult process would be. So over time, I know there's been shifts in what the juvenile justice system looks like. I mean, going way back, they were basically treated the same as adults and then it changed and then the get tough era came in and now we're kind of shifting back to rehabilitation. So we have these, you know, big developments or impacts in juvenile justice. Another one would be like the super predator theory or the myth that you know, was largely propagated by the media that theorized there are like these groups of juveniles who are willing to commit violent acts with no remorse. And so can you give us a few examples of these big shifts within the juvenile justice system and whether we're still feeling their impact? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a good question and and a nice, it's a nice sort of place to kind of get into 
how the process of juvenile poli- juvenile justice policy and practice has worked over time. And so, so yeah, I mean, I think Bernard and Kurlicek in their 2010 book talk about the cycle of juvenile justice. And, you know, I think we see these cycles in a lot of different public policy sort of discussions and debates, but they really sort of pointed it out in, in the context of juvenile justice. And so, you know, they were really remarking on the fact that you would go through these periods of time where treatment would be an emphasis and then there would be, you know, maybe some watershed case or some trend that emerges or, or seemingly emerges. And then there becomes this kind of, if not a panic, at least this kind of push to modify how things are working. And, and Jen, you just pointed out one that, that's obviously kind of a major factor in juvenile justice policy and practice over the last few decades. So that idea that in the 19, you know, 1980s, 1990s, that crime rates and violence rates, especially for, for youth and, and young adults, were really growing exponentially and that there were these kids that, you know, there's really nothing you could do except lock them up in order to, you know, ensure that society was not victimized over and over and over again, which, again, has is, is largely been, you know, seen to be incorrect over time. You know, so that's an example, just in the sense that it triggered a number of different acts in juvenile justice policy, whether that was expanding laws and, and creating new mechanisms to transfer cases from the juvenile justice system to the adult system, kind of greater levels of incarceration within the juvenile justice system. So more use of state residential facilities, you know, attempting to or gradually kind of shrinking the distance between what we just talked about as far as those distinctions between the juvenile justice system and the adult system. And so those kinds of trends have happened and in sort of the 80s and 90s, and, and that sort of largely left us with a system kind of at the turn of the century where a lot of youth, a lot of youth were in, in residential facilities legislatively and even judicially, there was a lot more emphasis, certainly than there had been in the past, on sort of punitive kind of sanctions, even some of the, even some of the more treatment-oriented and community-based sanctions for youth, you know, kind of took on some of the language, the adult court. So, for example, you know, juvenile accountability grants were given in, in, in terms of ensuring that youth were being monitored very closely there were certain sets of steps, which, you know, in and of themselves may have been reasonable steps, coupled with a lot of other different initiatives really kind of came as this package to try to toughen up the, the court in some ways. And so when we reached, you know, what was about the, you know, 100 years of, of the juvenile court, at least, the, you know, the Chicago initiative, there was a lot of discussion about whether we should abolish the court because it had become so much like the adult system in, in people's minds and in some of the analysis. And so people like Barry Feld, the prominent juvenile justice scholar, argued for you know, a certain form of abolition at that point. And so I think what, what's happened is that that's sort of one watershed kind of over the last four years. And then you know, since the late 90s and early 2000s, we have seen a lot more of a shift back to, all right, are there ways to sort of have this kind of accountability mechanism as one part of the the juvenile justice process, but then also have more effective treatment 
have a set of alternatives that would allow for local agencies, predominantly kind of county juvenile courts, to send fewer youth to to state residential facilities and, and house more of them in either community-based facilities or have some alternative diversion programs, other treatment programs, coupled with community monitoring that would be effective. So I think that's kind of where we are, we're at now. So we're sort of back in this place, as, as you mentioned, right, where we kind of swing back and forth. What's going to be interesting probably is, you know, whether or not we see, and I think there's, you know, and I believe you've had some folks on the podcast that have talked a bit about the current kind of trends that we're seeing in U.S. cities, and, and you wonder about the degree to which some of that carries into depending on the composition of who's involved in those rises in violence, whether that changes some of the disposition mm-hmm. towards juvenile justice policy and practice. So we're seeing we're seeing some of that. One other thing I'll mention too that's happened more recently is legislative and judicial shifts in terms of recognizing, you know, Jose mentioned it up front, the, the obvious difference between adolescents and children and adults. But, you know, I think what happened in the, the 1990s is some of that started to become a little more blurred and, you know, the, some of those barriers were knocked down. So I think what we've seen both because of some of the research that's come out around youth development and some judicial cases that pushed a bit more to treat kids like kids and then also some initiatives legislatively and from kind of activism and, and lobbying to raise the age of adult jurisdiction over over youth cases. And so we've seen some of that over the last, or a lot of that over the last 20, 20 years or so too. And that sort of has shifted, shifted the, the juvenile system a bit more towards the evidence base, a bit more towards youth development. But one of the things I think that's, that's notable is actually the most recent Supreme Court case. And there's not that many over the years that deal with juvenile justice, but one that recently came down in April actually sort of rolled back some of the protections that came out of the the period from about 2005 to about 2015 or so. And so it'll be interesting to see whether or not the courts and legislatures start kind of moving back toward a bit more of what we saw in the 1990s. Now, obviously, hopefully not. Hopefully there's more sort of discussion to be had there, but it's worth watching at this point. Is that the court case you're talking about, about the life without parole? Mississippi? Yeah, Jones versus Mississippi. Yeah, so it is. And it was was sort of related to Miller v. Alabama and and a couple of others that that occurred, you know, maybe 10 years ago or so. But yeah, that that one kind of rolled back a bit of, Mm -hmm. of what, you know, what had been happening previously. So as we've seen changes in the Supreme Court, this is an example, at least, I guess, that's applicable to juvenile justice of a place where some of the shift in the court may have had an impact on that decision and what we saw sort of in terms of the tendency or the, the trend that was happening from 2005 on seems, at least in that particular case, to have been stopped at that point. Yeah. When you mentioned that the age of a juvenile has been increasing kind of over time, and then you mentioned Barry Feld. It made me think of his idea of, I think he called it the youth discount, where mm-hmm. it's kind of like the age gradient. So if you're mm-hmm. 14, you get a lesser sentence than a 15-year-old, et cetera. What's your take on a concept like that? Yeah. So, and, and he talked about it again, and some of that work I mentioned, where the idea would be 
And to be fair, you know, some of his concerns and the concerns of others who wanted to sort of abolish the, the juvenile court, some of those concerns were about perceptions that there weren't enough due process, due process protections for youth in, in the juvenile justice system. And so, you know, that could be perceived as another difference between the juvenile and the adult system. So despite some, again, some Supreme Court cases over time that tried to make sure that there were procedural protections for youth, they still probably aren't as robust as in the adult system, you know, under the supposition that the court, the juvenile court is supposed to be a bit more of kind of this benevolent, benevolent kind of parent, if you will. And so, yeah, his point about, well, we can just have a single system and then do youth discounting and age discounting. I think, you know, I think there's, there's some, you know, premise by which that could possibly work. However, I think one of the things that we've seen is that it can be, you know, quite a slippery slope, just in the mm-hmm. sense that if you have youth in the, in the adult system, there may be signaling, there may be symbolism. I think Aaron Kupchak talks about this in, in some of his work in looking at youth processed in juvenile and adult courts. You know, this idea that, that bringing youth into those systems, you know, it's not just about the sanction that they're getting at the end. There's also processing. Uh, processes that are that might be different and going into a hearing room in a juvenile court may be quite different than going into you know a substantial courtroom in the adult system and so i think that there's you know there still would be some some issues i believe in in trying to put them together i also think that some of that you know on the one hand you could argue that the youth discount could come into play but there's still probably still going to be some discretion that's at play there and then you're also going to have judges that are used to processing adult cases potentially and trying to make those calibrations. And I think there could be some challenges there. And the last point I would make on that too, is I think, you know, at least when I've talked about it in my juvenile justice seminar in the past, one of the things that always comes up is that, you know, to some extent that's also predicated on, okay, we can take the social service part out of the juvenile justice system and leave that to, you know, child welfare agencies and, and, you know, whether or not the funds that currently go to juvenile justice would then migrate to those settings, I think is a little bit difficult to, number one, to, to kind of assess and know. But I think also there's evidence where we've seen, you know, we've seen deinstitutionalization of mental health facilities over time, over the decades. And, you know, with a belief that community treatment would be there to sort of take care of that demand, and we can really ever see that happen. And so I would, I would worry if the same thing could materialize in this type of case. Yeah. So in your book that we sort of mentioned in your introduction, Taking Juvenile Justice Seriously, you mentioned that policymakers and administrators, they often tend to focus on like this big picture type stuff. So like, how do we take a developmental approach to juvenile justice and you know, embracing policies and practice that affect adolescents? But you do mention also that, that, that that's all good and fine and dandy, but we should also be focusing on the day-to-day processes and that those often go ignored. Can you give us some examples of what these day-to-day things are that we should be paying more attention to? Sure. And I think, you know, the point, point I think was trying to make in the book 
is really that we do have, you know, these particular issues. So I've, I've mentioned a few of them already, you know, the initiative to raise the age of adult court jurisdiction, you know, the idea of deinstitutionalization of youth so that fewer are actually in state residential facilities and more of them are either in the community or in community-based facilities where, you know, maybe parents will have more access and there's, you know, potentially more rehabilitative options. But I think one of the, the, the point that I would make there is that all of these are, are really important. Those are things that need to be focused on from a big picture standpoint. But especially if we're talking about developmental juvenile justice, and we think about how we, you know, how we learn and how if we also think about a developmental trajectory, how that happens is through sort of a series of events, of interactions, of relationships that sort of aggregate to something that you see over time. And so, you know, situationally, I think one of the things that we would need to keep, keep in mind is we're thinking about developmental, developmental juvenile justice system. I think this is really also stems from talking with juvenile justice personnel over time as they've shared their experiences with youth and what things matter in terms of whether or not the process sort of is, is working as it should or not. And so a couple of examples, one would be, if we think developmentally, the way that the court and the judge communicates with the youth in terms of why a particular sanction is occurring or why they're expected to attend school or engage in a particular type of treatment. That's where maybe the connection is going to be made on, you know, the degree to which this is meant to be sort of this developmental intervention, if you will, so that youth can kind of be redirected more towards a positive developmental trajectory. The other one that I talk about in the book, and there's, you know, there's some evidence for it. It hasn't been studied that much, but there is this sort of idea of kind of a therapeutic alliance that comes from comes from treatment, broader treatment in mental health and in substance use, where the relationship between the individual and their therapist or the counselor is really important in terms of what comes out of that process. And I think there's a parallel when we start thinking about, you know, probation officer, you know, probation officer interactions with, with youth. And so we could have presumably developmentally appropriate treatment, you know, that basically fits with where the youth is in adolescence and maybe, you know, fits their needs as well. But if that relationship between the probation officer and the youth is roughly the same as it, as it would be if they were just dealing with an adult and it's mainly, you know, it's mainly kind of just a, a check-in at surface level and it's not sort of this developmental relationship, well, then that can be sort of offsetting and, and maybe water down some of the other things that are happening in the system. So it's those kind of day-to-day interactions that I was really trying to get out there and talk about because, you know, if you think about it from the standpoint of even our own development, every interaction potentially with a, with a parent or with a, you know, an adult mentor can have some impact and especially as they accumulate over time. So that was kind of what was, what was meant there. Yeah. It's really interesting. I'm doing some work which Chris, you know, from if you remember from a few years ago mm-hmm. on interactions between correctional officers and incarcerated individuals, it just makes me think of exactly what you're talking about, that you need a good relationship there. And that relationship needs to look different if you're dealing with a youth or an adult. 
Yeah. And and do you think about the system? There's so many different people interacting with individuals, especially in a a prison setting or on the youth side and as a residential setting. So, you know, we know that there's treatment personnel. We might know that there's more custodial personnel and, you know, getting everyone to kind of buy into this juvenile, juvenile justice as kind of a developmental developmental factor can be tricky. And so that that's kind of the intent there is that that has to be aligned as well as, you know, having available treatment programs, trying to keep youth out of the system as much as possible, that kind of thing. Yeah. All right. So let's start to move a little bit more into the paper topic. Mm -hmm. So talking about disproportionate minority contact or DMC, It's a term and program that was introduced, I believe, by the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, or the OJJDP, that came out of like this Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention Act in 2002. Can you tell us a little bit more about the history of disproportionate minority contact and then also kind of give us a definition of what this means? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And and I think, yeah, I think you hit hit it pretty well, Jen, just in the sense of this has become a legislative priority over time. And so as they've developed the, the Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention Act, and then as they've reauthorized it over time, different elements of it started as, as disproportionate minority confinement. So it was really focused a bit more on custodial disproportionality. And then it's evolved into disproportionate minority contact. And now actually in the most recent reauthorization, in 2018, it's now uh, racial and ethnic disparities that the JJDP Act has kind of focused on. And so, you know, I think as we, we all know, right, these, are, these disparities actually precede a lot of the legislative initiative. You know, they can stretch back if we think about some of the discussion of the child savers by, you know, Anthony Platt and Jeff Ward has a, has a more recent book from 2012 that looks at race and, and the juvenile court, I think, in a really thorough way and, and in particular, you know, elaborates a lot on that history and the evolution of the court with respect to race. But basically what we know is that in the sort of from this legislative piece, going back a, a few few decades now, that these disparities have been observed. There's been initiatives to try to collect information on those disparities, so to collect data. So that's been part of this process and then also try to develop programming and approaches to try to diminish these disproportionate involvement that we see across race and ethnicity groups. In terms of a definition, it sort of is going to be one that follows a bit depending on the stage of the, the system and the process. So you can see over time, people have looked at this at a variety of different points, starting at arrest, intake into the system and referral. You know, you can look at and and take, for example, the paper we'll discuss, you know, there we're looking at actual sort of remanding to juvenile confinement in state residential facilities. But there's also, you know, a host of others, whether or not youth are in detention, which is an early stage of the process, which we see based on Nancy Rodriguez and some some others work that can carry through into later decision stages as well. So it's really situations where relative to population and kind of relative to expectations, do we see disproportionately that youth of color, youth who have been minoritized, that they are disproportionately in that, you know, disproportionately experiencing 
more severe outcomes at a particular point in time. So that could be being sent to residential facilities more frequently, just as it could be, you know, being arrested more frequently as well. So it's really about that disproportionality. There's some different ways to measure it, but roughly speaking, that's what we're looking for to see whether or not relative to sort of population numbers and then involvement at particular points in the system, whether that ratio differs across groups. And what we found is that, you know, that is the case and and has been the case for a while. And even as we've seen some changes over the last 20 years, for example, in in youth incarceration rates, which have come down, you know, 50-60%, we still see those disparities persist. All right. Well, I think that gives us a a good launching off point to get into your paper. So it was co-authored by our guest, Chris Sullivan, and also Derek Mueller and Hannah McManus. The paper is titled Disproportionate Experiences in Custody and Examination of Minority Youth's Outcomes in Secure Facilities. The paper was published in 2020 in Justice Quarterly. And this article is an exploratory study that examines how race may factor into youth's experiences in residential placement facilities. More specifically, Chris and his colleagues use a stratified random sample of just over 1,500 youth confined in secure residential facilities between 2010 and 2014 to examine whether there was a relationship between race and the number of disciplinary infractions, seclusion time, length of stay, and time absent from educational services. Additionally, they look at whether disciplinary infractions are able to mediate the relationship between race and seclusion time, as well as length of stay. Is that, you know, an okay summary of your, your paper, Chris? Yeah, Jose, I think, you, I think that's a good summary. It kind of, you know, reflects sort of what we, what we did and what we found and, and kind of the study, you know, the study methods. So, yeah, I think it's a good summary. Great. Okay, so question number one, and one, and you know, this is standard fare for everybody, and unfortunately, Chris, you're you're no exception. (laughs) What was the motivation behind writing this paper, and sort of what was the gap that you were trying to fill? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, you know, for us, I'll say two things. The first one I'll say is substantively, what we saw in this literature was that a lot of the research including a study we had done to look at disproportionate minority contact in the state of Ohio, really focused on outcomes up until a youth would be sent to a juvenile residential facility. So we sort of, in the, in the paper, we're sort of saying like, okay, yeah, we see that, that there's definitely these disparities. We also happen to have access to these data, you know, e- even imperfect as they are, about kind of what's happening while the youth is in the facility. And so the question then becomes, you know, can we look at and and analyze some questions related to that? And so I would say that the predominant reasoning was to try to extend, especially in the the juvenile justice literature, we cited a little bit in the paper, some stuff that focuses a bit on the adult system in terms of disproportionate kind of handling and treatment in correctional facilities. But we really wanted to focus on that here in a juvenile setting. In part because we know, you know, what happens in a facility is going to matter. And it's going to especially matter for youth who are 15, 16, 17, 
and so on, right? These are kids that are coming in. Number one, they're going to generally be fairly far away from their communities. They are going to, you know, get different degrees and quality of treatment, although, you know, that has maybe improved in the facilities. It's still going to be inconsistent. And, you know, they're going to have to sort of meet some different developmental milestones, for example, education while in those facilities. So I think it's really important if we're considering sort of these disproportionalities in terms of what, who's going into facilities, you know, are we seeing even more on top of that? So are we seeing that those differences are exacerbated in the system, you know, especially when we know that particularly at that stage, you know, being incarcerated could have an impact on their later, both their later offending, and then also their sort of cumulative life chances, as well as their as they're sort of heading into adulthood. So it was more, it was kind of about understanding what was going on in the facility, but also using that as a conduit to understand, you know, whether groups of youth, predominantly in in this state, black and brown youth were going to be disproportionately affected, both in terms of their presence in the facilities, and then also what happened there as well. So that was the intent. The other thing I'll say just really quickly is this is a situation sort of from the standpoint of inside inside the research process. Usually when we're doing research, we, we kind of wind up with, we have this ideal plan in mind going in and, you know, we gradually have to sort of deal with the obstacles that get sort of raised as we go into the process in conducting our research. And so this was a situation where we had we'd gone out and we were trying to get data from police agencies to complete our study. And we kind of, we couldn't quite get as much traction there as we wanted to. We really had a list of about 40 agencies that we wanted to get data from. We probably ended up with about half that, maybe a little bit less. But the funder basically said to us, well, in exchange, will you, you know, take a look at our residential facility data and do some analysis there? And so we got these data on the residential facilities much later And then we were able to think like, oh, wow, we have this information and we can answer this question well. And that's really that's really kind of this interesting thing that we want to do. So it was a situation where we reached some obstacles, but then this sort of other piece of data that we didn't originally collect or didn't originally intend to collect kind of came our way and we were able then to carry out this study as a result. So that was sort of a positive silver lining coming out of that, that cloud in our research process. Yeah, I feel like research never goes exactly how you plan it on paper. So that's nice that this came out of that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So kind of to follow that, and you in a way already answered this, but just to be more direct, you know, why is it important to understand whether there's evidence of the disproportionate minority contact in residential facility experiences among youth? Why is it important to look at this question? Yeah, I think, you know, I think it goes back to the intent of the juvenile justice system, right? I mean, the idea, the idea behind juvenile justice in particular is twofold. One is that there is going to be some, you know, some aspect of it that, you know, focuses on community protection, that focuses on accountability, but also a major part of it is to try to redirect youth. I think, especially when we think about that developmental angle that's really you know, always been in the in the system, but but is even more prevalent and prominent in recent years. And so what we want to do is to make sure that, you know, 
we're minimizing as much as possible use of the most severe sanction in the juvenile justice system, which is going to be confinement in a residential facility. So we want to limit that as much as possible, but we also you know, want to make sure that those sanctions are delivered equitably in terms of who's in that, who's in those facilities, but then also what happens in those facilities. So that's really why we felt it was important to do this study. And again, secondarily, there really hasn't been too much to look at that. And, you know, it's an important gap, especially when we think about the fact that youth who are, youth are basically confined as juveniles, they will all be released from these facilities, you know, maybe with a few exceptions. So, and that would really be reserved for cases maybe where they're moving into the adult system at some point. But so the idea is really to try to understand whether or not some of those burdens, if you will, of juvenile incarceration are kind of disproportionately experienced to begin with. And then also does what happened in the system, or I'm sorry, in the facilities, is that maybe adding even more challenges upon release? You know, you've pointed out, and you also make this point in the paper that there hasn't been a lot of research done on the impact of race on youth outcomes and experiences within these institutional settings. However, you do point to other studies that look at how race has factored into other situations like court decision process, processes, placement in secure facilities, things of that nature. And so this body of prior research sort of provides like a foundation for your study or a base that you know you build off of. Can you sort of hit us with the main findings from prior research on these topics? It varies a little bit. I think in the juvenile justice system, it varies a little bit by decision point, you know, as far as maybe intake decisions, decisions to to detain a youth prior to their court hearings, and then going through the whole process to residential placement. The majority of those, basically youth, whether it's whether it's Hispanic youth or Black youth in the U.S., you know, there's going to be some disproportionate experience of detention, of residential placement. The degrees to which that's the case are going to vary a little bit across decision points. So just as one example, there's some research that's found as we get into, for example, dispositions, as we get into adjudication, there can sometimes be corrections on sort of earlier disparities, in part because those can be kind of fact-finding stages. And so we might see either a little bit of a reversal or diminishing level of disparity there. But certainly as we start to look at kind of the beginning parts of the system, and then certainly the kind of the deepest end of the juvenile justice system, we're going to tend to see disparities where youth of color are disproportionately, you know, experiencing outcomes that would be seen as more severe in the court. Now, again, that's going to vary a little bit from place to place. It might vary some from decision point to decision point, but generally the takeaway is that that's, that disproportionate minority contact is, is there and is, is fairly persistent. Right. And so how, you know, going off of that, how might institutional misconduct come into play here and impact, you know, the relationship between race and the duration of time served and also time spent in seclusion or sort of solitary confinement? So I think, you know, if we, if we consider, you know, a lot of different other aspects of the criminal and juvenile justice systems, 
I think there's some clues there. Now we can't sort of measure, or we we didn't measure. We have a record-based kind of study here, so we're not necessarily getting at what is original, you know, a corrections officer's decision-making process. For example, why are these misconducts happening? Who exactly is involved? But one of the things we can see is that you know disproportionately. You know, for example, if it's low-level offenses at the front of the system where police are, you know, tending to arrest youth, youth of color at higher proportions than white youth, that's going to be kind of a clue. So what we would think in the facilities is that if these institutional misconducts are more, more frequently detected or engaged in or experienced by a youth of color, well, then that's going to have other impacts potentially on aspects of their institutional experience, of the length of stay they might have, you know, that really affects like what that, you know, we tend to think about sometimes, and we tend to think about a lot of things in terms of variable-based kind of measurement. And we're sort of necessarily limited in that way. But if we think about like the qualitative experience of one youth's time in residential facility versus another one, another youth's time in a residential facility, the question then becomes, you know, are those different in some ways? And what we're trying to get into here is if we have similarly situated youth, one youth of color and then one white youth, are they having different experiences uh, while in the system, in that part of the system? And, you know, in turn, what does that maybe mean for the prospects as they leave the system later on? Cool. So I think that's a great place to start to dive into the results of your study. So the first thing that you really focused on is the relationship between race and the number of disciplinary infractions youth were receiving, which can be things, and I don't know exactly in your data, but from my knowledge, it can be things from disobeying an order, from someone in the correctional staff to stealing property or fighting or even more extreme forms of violence. And so what you found was that non-white youths had significantly more infractions than white youth in your full model. So accounting for all of your other variables that included gender and age, among other things. So based off of this, what does that tell us about disproportionate minority contact beyond just the fact that minority youth were getting more infractions? Right. I think what it does is gives us an initial starting point to think about unpacking that relationship and, and making some determination about what that, what that differential means, you know, what can happen as a result of that differential. And so we sort of used that and saw that institutional misconduct as sort of this almost central variable in terms of, of the fact that it can have reverberating effects. And so it opens the gateway to more time in seclusion. It opens the gateway to a youth perhaps being absent from you know, school time while, while in the facility. It obviously, we, and though we didn't measure it, right, that, that can also have some effects on the perceptions that administrative staff in the facility, that the correctional staff who are working closer to the youth might have. And so it sort of opens up a potential, you know, set of other outcomes that can happen from there. So we really wanted to look to see, you know, does that initial, does that initial difference hold up? And I think it's also, again, as I mentioned already, it's also a variable that, that pat, it's also a variable that, that sort of parallels 
some of our kind of general delinquency variables if we were just looking at youth who are in the community. So one of the things that you looked at was the relationship between race and seclusion time or the number of days each youth spent in disciplinary isolation, probably better known as solitary confinement, length of stay at the juvenile facility, and proportion of time absent from educational services. What were some of your findings when it came to seclusion time? Yeah, I think with seclusion time, the predominant way that youth were in seclusion time was basically through some kind of disciplinary step. So that infraction, you know, has a very, very strong positive relationship with seclusion time. And, and so that was at least the time we did the study, and it's changed since, as we note in the paper. But basically at that time, that was the predominant response to, you know, youth gets in trouble, they're secluded for a period of time. And so those are very, very strongly correlated. And then what we see is that, you know, with disciplinary infractions, you know, and it makes sense that that could potentially, you know, either restrict youth's time in treatment, restrict their time in educational services, and that in turn might lengthen their stay in the facility as well. And again, that gets back to also how they're being perceived in terms of their behavior, in terms of, you know, quote, getting into trouble. And so that might have, that, that can have some implications for other aspects of what's happening in terms of their experience in the facility. So we, we tended to see that the disciplinary infractions was sort of a mediating variable that got into, got into length of stay, got into, as I mentioned, seclusion time. And, and each of those in turn, you know, can exacerbate some of the issues that come up due to a youth being in a particular facility. And if those are, again, are disproportionately experienced by Black and Hispanic youth, for example, in our, in our sample, that obviously is then going to, you know, create a different, different set of circumstances as those youth leave the facility whenever they do. All right. So you kind of touched on your other findings. So I'm just going to wrap the last two aspects we looked at into one. So did you find an association between race and length of stay in a juvenile facility? And then also a relationship between race and time absent from educational services? Yeah. So what we really found was that these were in, these operated kind of indirectly. So once we sort of pulled in the entire system of variables, if you will, then we saw that those relationships that we would see on the surface, if we just simply looked at, you know, a difference in means across groups, for example, you know, those were there at a bivariate level. Once we started adding some of the other control variables, they would diminish. But then when we think about sort of these complex kind of chains of events and relationships that we really, you know, know and suppose are going to be there when we start thinking about broader, you know, broader trends that we see in data, those are situations where we then would find that that seclusion time, and I'm sorry, the infractions in particular kind of served as a sort of mediation in that chain that linked race to these other outcomes that we saw. So the answer to the question is yes and no. We saw them, then we kind of see them diminished. But then as we start to think about what might be happening in the facility that then triggers other aspects later on or other experiences or other outcomes later on, that's when we do see this kind of chain happen. 
right, so sorry, did you have something to say, Jen? No, go ahead. No. So overall, you and your colleagues concluded that, you know, as you sort of alluded to, race has an inconsistent relationship with outcomes experienced by youth in custody. And while race had a consistent relationship with disciplinary infractions, race was not a significant predictor of seclusion time, length of stay, nor proportion of time absent from educational services especially after accounting for other important variables. However, the number, the number of disciplinary infractions did impact seclusion time and length of stay. So what are some of the implications of your findings from this paper? One for academics and researchers going forward, but also for the general public and policymakers. Yeah. So starting starting with kind of academic and research, I think that relationship between race and that outcome that you mentioned, I think it's important to unpack those. And, and so to look at these kind of models that are specified and considered as this sort of chain of, of relationships, as opposed to saying like, okay, we found this or we didn't find this when we added this set of variables. I think here, this was an opportunity for us to kind of look at the process a little bit more holistically and think about kind of what might be an intermediate step that would sort of give us more insight into that, the overall relationship. So if we had just stopped at kind of putting this in a regression model, we might have considered, we might have concluded that, oh, wow, all right, we do see these bivariate relationships, but when we add these other control variables to the model, that goes away. But we knew kind of going in that there could possibly be some route through which those differences that we initially observed in race and experiencing disciplinary infractions could have other trigger, trigger other things, you know, down the line. And so I think it's important to elaborate on our models wherever possible. And I think in terms of the implications, what I would just say is that, you know, from a policy and practice standpoint, and since this paper has come out, I've given a, a few presentations building on it. And I'm working on a paper right now that kind of builds on some of that as well, right? We've seen, as I've mentioned, really precipitous declines in youth in facilities, but we have a lot of work to do in terms of looking at what's actually happening in those facilities. So, you know, presumably if we have fewer youth and the same resources, we should be able to treat youth better. We should be able to manage interactions in a way that reduces the likelihood of fights or reduces or, or can maybe take a little bit more of a developmental approach to responding to disobedience from youth who are in the facility. facility. So I would really think that we, we have to kind of consider the degree to which this is really a significant problem if we have disproportionality going into the system or into the facilities and then also seeing it within different aspects and experiences. And we really need to make sure that we're focusing a lot of attention on that because otherwise we really are going to see, you know, cumulative disadvantage kind of piled on top of cumul cumulative disadvantage as youth kind of transition to adulthood. And that's really not going to be good for them. It's also not going to be good for their communities and society more generally. So I think that, that those would be the implications that I would say. Cool. Yeah. 
a really interesting paper and I'm, I'm excited and I'm happy to hear that you're working on more on it because I'm yeah. excited to see what else comes out of it. Yeah, me too. Just yeah. wanted to make sure. All right. So is there any last things you'd like to say about the paper before we move into talking about editing? No, not really. I think we covered a, covered a lot of ground with respect to the paper. It, it was, as I said, it was a product of a much larger study that involved a lot of student researchers and, and a couple of colleagues. And so put in a lot of work and then also a lot of data collection from people in the field. And so just kind of acknowledging their, their involvement along the way, I think is about all that I'd, I'd add at this point. Cool. Yeah, the two co-authors are they candidates, doctoral candidates right now, or have yeah, they they both yeah. are both are graduate students at the University of Cincinnati. Yeah, cool. cool. All right, so let's move into talking about being a journal editor. So, as we mentioned in your introduction, you've been the co-editor of the Journal of Research in Crime and Delinquency with Professor Jean McGloin since 2017. And so we'd like to talk to you a bit about what made you decide to become a journal editor and then, you know, editorial decisions. So our first question for you is just that. Why did you decide to take on the role of being a journal editor? I think, you know, it's a couple couple of things. For me, you know, I'm always someone as I as I sort of came along that was really interested in sort of the process of how scientific work gets from start to finish. And, and so how, how what we see in journals, you know, essentially gets there. And so for me, it was something that was gradual. I don't know that I sort of came into the start of my career saying, all right, I want to be, want to be a journal editor. But the more and more that I reviewed papers, was invited to sit on editorial boards and, and sort of saw the process more, it became more interesting to me. It became something that, that I, you know, felt like I was in a good position to do, you know, in terms of where I was in my career, in terms of the amount of exposure I'd had to the process at that point. I think it also was, you know, something that from a broader standpoint, there's a bit of being involved in the, in the editorial process that sort of is serving as someone who's helping either move, again, move, move the process along and identifying kind of what's in, what's getting into the literature. And then there's also sort of uh, helping people along, you know, as they're developing their work and, and being able to hopefully contribute constructively to that. And so, you know, I think just being part of the process would be how I'd sum it up in a few words. I, I think it's, we're in a unique position as, as sort of scholars to kind of have this way of putting our work out there, getting critique on it, revising and resubmitting it, and then ultimately seeing it in print. And I kind of just like, I've always felt an affinity for that process. And so being a journal editor, especially at a journal that, that when I was a graduate student was published at, at Rutgers, that is, is really kind of the motivation for me. So we've talked to you know people like Kyle and David about being journal editors, and they were always saying how, you know, being a journal editor is a ton of work. Uh, can you, you know, maybe give us a few more details on what the job looks like? What is it exactly that you do as an editor? Yeah, absolutely. So 
And I, I would just say as a caveat, like this is going to, this is going to vary a little bit depending on the journal and depending on, you know, things like resources, things like processes. So we, you know, we work with Sage Publications on, on a journal of research in crime and delinquency. And so that might be different than some other journals that are either more independently published or have different publishers from us. But so our processes, and I would also say too, that some, some journal editors are going to have different degrees to which they're hands-on as well. So our process really starts with, after an initial screen by our managing editor, we get the paper. I usually will read it once through and identify who might be good, good reviewers for that paper. Sometimes that's by looking at the citations. Sometimes that's by me thinking of someone who I think might be, might be good for it as I'm reading through it, you know, depending on whether or not, if it's a particular theory that's being looked at, if it's a particular data set, you know, and I'm aware of people who've done work in that area, usually, usually they're going to be cited, but, but even failing that, then I, you know, I may be kind of jotting down some margin notes of possible reviewers. I'm also forming my impression of the paper in my notes that eventually I'll go back to after I see kind of what the reviewers say. Also, the other, the other part of it is, is to kind of read it to see whether or not I'm going to send it out at all for review. So we do, in an effort both to move the process along for authors and, and not necessarily hold them up, and then also to maybe not, maybe be mindful of what we're sending out to reviewers. We may editorially kind of reject a paper, but if assuming most and most gets sent out, you know, I'm developing an impression that then I can keep in mind when I see the reviews eventually and write, write up the decision letter. So looking at that, thinking about good reviewers, if it's, for example, a paper that's really intense methodologically or analytically, I might be thinking about, all right, who, who can review this, this particular paper? Because that can sometimes narrow the pool. And then once, once I've read through it and have my notes and, and my ideas about reviewers, you know, it's time to send that out or send the, yes, yeah, uh, invitations. And then from there, we wait to see what the decisions and, and recommendations are from the reviewers. You know, at that stage, what you're doing is really kind of processing some recommendations and insights and then coming to a conclusion on what, what should happen with the paper. And so, you know, it's, it's partly looking at like, what are the recommendations, you know, in terms of reject, in terms of revise and resubmit and so forth. But a lot of it's also trying to read into the comments and, and make some assessment about strengths and limitations. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, we, we send it out or we, we send out the response letter to give the author a sense of what the decision is. If it's a revise and resubmit, we want to try as much as possible, identify the, the most important issues to look at in the revision or synthesize and, and clarify the things that really are going to be important and ultimately making a decision. And then sort of proceeds through the rest of the process where the author will make their changes. I'll take another look at it. Usually a reviewer will take another look at it. At that stage, usually you can make a decision, but there may be, there's occasionally some that go to a, a second level of review, which I usually do myself. Okay. You must read a lot of papers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, our submissions are generally somewhere between about 220 and 250 a year. So I'm reading, I'm reading at least half of those papers fairly closely. And so regardless of the decision, yeah. And, and you get to see 
kind of going back to your first question, and, and I don't know that I fully appreciated this when I decided to do this, but it's nice because you do get to see, you know, what's going on in the field more broadly. You get to see kind of what the trends are and, and both, you know, sometimes both from a good and, and bad standpoint, you know, you get to know who's doing what work in, in particular areas. So that's, that's kind of an interesting aspect of it as well. But yeah, I do read a lot of papers. Yeah. All right. So when you are making kind of an initial publishing decision, what factors are most important to you? Yeah. Yeah. And again, this is going to be driven by the journal, but for me, it's going to be, we want, and I want to see, you know, papers that are empirically sound, that are thorough and and kind of considering the issues at hand that are very clear in terms of what their objective is. And so, you know, one of the things I'll maybe use use this to kind of get some some information out there. I think one of the things you see a lot in people justifying their papers is, you know, say, all right, we're the first to do this, or, you know, this hasn't been done before. And, and so what we try even, even and that comes up even in, in the best papers we see, what we really try to do is to push people towards like, well, why is this a gap? Why is it important that we don't know the answer to this question? And so, you know, that's something that I really like to like to see if I'm looking at looking at a paper, you know, Hope we try charged there. Yeah, we all are. Yeah, we all are. I mean, <clears throat> that's something you and Jean gave me a hard time on during the JR City workshop. Like, that's not good enough. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, that's something where, you know, I think everyone's done that at one time or another. And, and really, it's a natural shorthand, right? Yeah. It's something where you can kind of signal in a sentence or two. And we're always trying to be somewhat concise. I mean, that's a good way to say like, yeah, this is a, there's a hole here. But, you know, I think what I try to push authors to is to really like, you know, say, all right, well, why does this matter? And I think ultimately that helps both to situate the work in a way that, that really makes it as strong possible, as strong as possible. And then also later on in the discussion, like, all right, what has really been learned here that's super impactful? So yeah, that's a big one. You know, obviously, I think we're, we're looking to make sure that things are empirically sound, although, you know, there are going to be times where, you know, you, you maybe haven't considered everything in the first submission. And so then the question becomes, you know, is there enough here to work with? You know, do we feel like at the subsequent stages of the process that some of these kinks can be ironed out? And so that's, a, that's kind of a you know, determining factor as well. But yeah, I think we're looking for things that are impactful and interesting, you know, looking for things that are empirically sound, but we, you know, we really, we really want to have like kind of some theoretical grounding. We feel like at least at JRCD, that's what we're trying to do with the journal. And so that's a big part of it too, is like, what's the substantive question and and value of, of looking at this particular question? And I think the other thing that we definitely look forward to is like, all right, is this something that, and I don't think it's a, a matter of novelty. I think it's more a matter of like, is this something that really helps helps us understand a particular problem better? And, you know, I think that's the place to start for us in making decisions. Cool. So, okay, Chris, want to pick your brain a little bit well, <laughs> more than we already have. No, no problem. Uh, so not a little bit, a lot. What advice would you give to people for effectively dealing with editorial decisions, whether it's a rejection or an R&R, also it's a revise and resubmit. Yeah. 
I think, you know, a couple things, you know, you want to, you know, start off from the standpoint of thinking about it collaboratively. I realize that can be difficult sometimes when the tone of reviews, you know, maybe a little bit over the top or maybe feel a little bit pointed. You know, I think, you know, so, you know, first thing I would say is on the reviewer side, it's important for people to be constructive, to be thorough and thoughtful. You know, I think if you, if you're not sure about a particular aspect of the paper, I think it's enough to just say, you know, I'm not sure about this. And usually one of the other reviewers can pick up on it or I can, I can pick up on it. So I think that, that it starts with hopefully getting good reviews, good thorough reviews. And most of the reviews that, that I see at the journal are, are, are good and constructive and not mean-spirited. There are, you know, exceptions and, and trying to minimize those is a good place to kind of start for everyone. But once the reviews, kind of the, the decisions made, I think that the important thing is to really, you know, start off from a stand, standpoint of collaboration not being overly defensive. Usually at that stage, everyone's paper can use some work. And so using the effective or using the feedback effectively, identifying the things that you feel like you can do right out of the gate and kind of building some momentum and responding to those concerns. Because I know you can see at times, you know, you might get three reviewers that have several points each or more. And it can be kind of daunting when you're looking at it initially. And so I think you want to sort of say, all right, what can I, you know, what can I do to improve this paper based on the advice that I've been given by the editor and by these reviewers? And so start from that standpoint, be as thorough as possible, you know, try to be responsive. If you can't do something, you know, I would acknowledge that and then also try, you know, as much as possible, maybe to consider the sensitivity of your findings to the point that's being raised. You know, I've been told that I'm someone that, that asks for a lot of sensitivity analysis that tries to, wherever possible, get as close to the answer to a, a reviewer's question mm-hmm. if it can be done. So being deliberate, being thorough, I think is really important there. I think also, obviously, ensuring that you're, you're being responsive and, and not diminishing the feedback that you've been given is going to be important. But I think a lot of it is sort of psychological, especially that, that first if when you get an R&R sometimes, it's like, oh, wow, this is just a lot to do. I'm not sure how I'm ever going to get this done. But I think if you start and build slowly and get momentum, then you can work through those by being responsive to the editors and, and or to the editor and then to the, to the reviewers. On the reject side, you know, the, the other part of your question, you know, I think, again, I would try to glean whatever you can from those reviews as much as possible. Again, that might sting at first, especially a rejection is going to sting if you kind of take a step back and say, all right, what can I, what can I learn from this? And then I think also formulating a plan that sort of, you know, finds, you know, finds a path forward with that paper that moves it along. So it's not sitting on your desk for months and months and months, but also deals with maybe, you know, the bigger issues uh, maybe the reviewers have identified. And the reason, you know, the reason I say that is even if you can't fully resolve something before sending it to another journal, in our field, a lot of times we are going to quite honestly be using similar, the same reviewers maybe across, you know, across papers. We're in a, we're in a, a space now where it's really, really difficult to find good reviewers. I think I hear this from editors probably every time 
I'm at a conference or every time I talk to someone else who's editing a journal. And so by extension, what that means is if you've sent your paper to criminology, for example, and it, it unfortunately doesn't get accepted there, and then it comes to JRCD, we might be looking at the same reviewers in part because it could be a specialized paper. We're looking for good reviewers. And so we're not necessarily going to exclude them. And you know what ends up happening is if you haven't really dealt with anything from the previous stage, you know, where it was rejected, well, then the reviewer is going to say, you know, this person didn't really even take my advice seriously on the previous version of the paper. And that's frustrating. And so the idea should be across the entire sort of life lifespan of a paper that it's being progressively improved, whether or not it's rejected at one journal or not, or whether it's, you know, getting an R&R. The idea is with each piece of feedback that you're getting is to improve the paper. And so, you know, I think that there's some signaling that comes into play where if authors don't engage in that process fully, it can kind of come back to haunt them later on. So that's one of the things I would say with reject is, you know, try to minimize the sting, think about getting it back out as soon as possible, realizing it's part, you know, it's part of the process. I mean, I think, you know, those of us who submit a lot of papers, you're going to get a lot of rejections too. And you, so you just kind of have to steal yourself for some of that at times, and then, you know, identify what the path is for the next phase of the paper. Yeah. Good tips. (laughs) It definitely does sting when you get pages and pages of feedback though. (laughs) But yeah. You could take it as they just really cared a lot about your paper. Exactly. That's the good spin to it. Right. (laughs) All right. So you have, you did mention a few tips for being a good reviewer. So things like being constructive and make sure to be thoughtful and caring and not just completely mean and rude. Are there any other tips you would give people, like especially grad students who are just starting to be a reviewer for how to write good reviews? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I think a few things that I would, I would keep in mind, you know, one, one would be to try to think about the paper a bit holistically in terms of how the pieces fit together. You know, so how does the argument that's being built up front phase into the study? How do the study results then inform the discussion? You know, if those kind of links in the chain aren't aren't there, that's something that can be problematic from the standpoint of a paper. And so, you know, I think you always want to be thinking about that from the standpoint of, you know, what holistically, what is this paper getting at? Does the study fit with the objectives kind of laid out up front in terms of research questions or hypotheses? I think, you know, being, you know, in terms of being a good reviewer, especially as a graduate student, I usually encourage, you know, encourage students to, you know, think about the fact that we're in a field where we both have to understand the substance of what's being studied. So that could be theory, or it could be the policy and practice in particular areas of the field, but then also sort of the methods. So the more you can kind of relate the methods to the theory and substance and thinking about your review and thinking about that piece of work, I think that's really helpful both in giving a good review and then also giving a review that allows for the author or the editor to see kind of how those pieces fit together, or maybe in some cases don't. I would you know, encourage people to, you know, to get involved in the process. The more that you see, the more papers you see, kind of the more you develop, you know, an eye towards what to look for in a manuscript. I think, you know, correlated with that is if the reviews come back to you and, and 
certainly we, we practice doing that, you know, take a look at, you know, did your conclusions about a paper align with the other reviewers that they were they different from the reviewers and the editor and in which ways did they differ? And, and so I think that that can be both beneficial as a reviewer. I would also argue if you're going to be involved in sending your own papers for review, which, which you know, that's kind of another part of all of this process, right? Is if you're mindful of that, that can also help you in your writing as you're submitting to journals too. So I think that has kind of some spillover positive effects as well there. Yeah, I mean, I think that you definitely just want to be thorough and thoughtful as far as your you know, your understanding of things. I don't think, you know, if you don't feel comfortable with a particular part or you're unclear about it, I think you can just let the editor know that even in the comments to the editor. Usually we're looking for three, you know, three people across, you know, across different points of emphasis in the review. And so, you know, if someone doesn't understand a particular, I mean, I think I had this happen the other day where someone basically in their comments, the editor says, say, oh, I can definitely comment on this part of the paper, but I'm unsure about this particular technique. And then I have two other reviewers who are a little more versed with that technique. And so mm-hmm. I think that can be helpful to set, set the context for the editor. And that way I know how to consider that particular review. And all of those reviews can be helpful. They're just going to have different points of emphasis. So, you know, play to your strengths. I think, you know, processing the reviews and thinking about how they can help your own work also makes it feel as though you're doing service, but you're also sort of growing along the way too. Yeah, definitely. Well, Chris, that was great. Thank you for all of your insights. All of your tips and tricks. Very helpful. (laughs) Is there anything else you'd like to add? Any closing remarks about juvenile justice and delinquency, disproportionate minority contact or journal editing? No, I mean, I think we, we covered a lot of ground. Obviously, I think in each of those topics, there's so much more that we could cover. And so, you know, I think that's why I like to write books about the things that I, I yeah. write about at this point, because there is, there's a lot of ground to cover. There's so many interesting facets to what we do. And even, you know, I think some of the conversation today touched on our each of our kind of research points of research emphasis but found mm-hmm. you know, found some different parallels between them that I think are, are really interesting and worth probably going into in the future yeah absolutely all right well then thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today it's been a pleasure and we could talk for a lot longer as you yeah. just noted is there anything that you would like to plug anything coming out or anything we should be on the lookout for yeah, no, I mean, I would say that the, the pleasure is mine and thank you both for, you know, having me on, but then also I think for doing this, doing this podcast in, in general. And I, I'm certainly impressed with the variety of topics at different, you know, different points, whether they're related to grad student life, whether they're related to different aspects of the discipline and different topics within research and publishing. You know, in terms of some things to look out for, Jose mentioned at the start in in the introduction, I do have a book coming out in the fall. It's on juvenile risk and needs assessment. And so when we're talking about, for example, DMC, that's something that's been proposed as as a way to kind of mitigate and reduce some of that disproportionality. Whether or not it, it sort of fully does that it is in question. And so in that book, Christina Childs and I really take on a lot of different aspects of juvenile risk and needs assessment and unpack that. So I think that that's something just to be on the lookout this fall. 
And then where can people find you? Twitter, email? Yeah. So Twitter, you can find me at prof underscore CJ Sullivan. And I'm fairly responsive on Twitter. So that's a place you can find me and keep up with what I'm doing. And then also I like to tweet about grad student related topics. I like to tweet on occasion about academic leadership. And so those are some things that I'm passionate about in in addition to to lots of different aspects of research too. Yeah. And then you'll be able to find me soon on the Texas State Criminal Justice and Criminology website as well. So that will be another place you can find me via email or, or reach out that way too. Perfect. Well, thank you again, Chris. It was great having you on. Yeah, thank you both so much. This is is fantastic. (laughs) Thank you. The Criminology Academy is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The Crim Academy. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please rate, review, and subscribe. Alternatively, let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, thecriminologyacademy.com. And lastly, share the Crim Academy episodes with your friends and family. 